0: When Mark and Anna Duncan had their first child, they felt an overwhelming desire to share their love with another child less fortunate than their son. Their commitment saw them move to Tanzania with by then their son and their daughter, where they adopted three siblings, bringing their family of four to suddenly a family of seven. Back in Australia, they welcomed another daughter and their family was complete. Knowing though that there were so many other children over in Tanzania who needed help, the couple began Forever Projects, whose vision is to empower families to become self-sustaining so they are able to care for their own families. Every dollar donated goes directly to work on the ground to meet the basic needs of families in Tanzania and to assist them in developing their own businesses. I recently caught up with Mark, and I so enjoyed his story. And I hope you do too. Mark Donkins, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. And I had not heard of Forever Projects before, so I'm keen to learn all about it. And um, I actually have a little story for you before we start. Um, I was interested to read that you hadn't considered adoption. Uh, from international kids' adoption um, until your first son, Jackson, was born. Mm. And I had a similar experience, but I didn't go all the way like you did, but we did sponsor a child through Child Fund for, oh, we we've been with Child Fund for about 25 years now. So that was following the birth of my first baby, and oh. it just does something to you, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely that was the mo- and we hear so many of our community members that have that same experience of just being aware of how much dependence the little newborn has on its its mother for just you know, nutrition and for life. And when that's not available, um yeah, it's heartbreaking to think about that that people would be separated for for um, reasons like poverty. So yeah, that's yeah. really like, lovely to hear that you had that experience too. Not only that, but you took action. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. So Mark um, talk me through how it all all came about. So you had Jackson and then had this idea that you wanted to adopt some international kids. So um yeah. and you had trouble, didn't you, doing that
1: yeah. to start well, with. And it was like I think like all change in ideas, it just started very innocently. So, you know, we were watching a documentary, Our six month old Jackson was on the couch. Um, and we just were horrified to see these children that were without families, but not only that, in the institutions that they were in, um that you know, some of the volunteers had kind of snuck in some cameras to expose some of the human rights abuses that were happening in this developing country. And we're just like, how is this the same planet where our child's sleeping soundly and loved and full tummy and these kids are literally rocking themselves to death? And so that was the kind of seed, I think, in both Anna and my my wife, Anna and my hearts to kind of go, what could we do to contribute? Um, We didn't think at that point, well, let's move overseas, but we just started considering maybe opening our family up to children that didn't have that hope of a family of their own. Um, Looked at domestic foster care and adoption. Looked at International adoption while staying in Australia, but as you mentioned, um, the system's pretty broken here um, and doesn't really help families like ours or wanting to connect with kids that need a family with actually um, with, with kids who, who want one. So yeah, it was twenty ten. We're walking down the beach one day, and my wife said, "Why don't we just move overseas and, and do this?" And uh, that what was, a woman! What a woman! Know, she's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So we um yeah, we moved over to Tanzania in mid twenty ten. We had our four year old at the time then, Jackson, and a little one-year-old Jemima, and uh used our background in education and um to get a job at an international school on the southern slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. And we lived and worked there three and a half years. So I taught maths and Anna was a school counselor and um boarding parent to like 30 Tanzanian high school students.
0: <laughs> oh wow, wow. Yeah. So so a boarding parent. So is there some wealth in Tanzania?
1: Like where, that. yeah, definitely, yeah. So, like, like Australia, there's a you know income inequality is is very real around the world, but in a country like yeah. that, it's more um, severe. And so there are families. I mean, there were international students there and um, domestic students that were were studying at this nice international school and getting a private education. So you know, there's the capacity for students to. Have that experience, but also you know wouldn't wouldn't have to travel too far from the from the gate of our school to find students uh, or to find kids that just were not even able to go to school because they didn't have enough money. So um yeah, the the gap between rich and poor is very real.
0: Yeah. So Mark, why did you choose Tanzania to start with when you could have chosen anywhere? Yeah. So
1: why? Yeah, we we were um really had a heart for some reason for uh, Africa itself. I'm not sure why that was, but. And then within that, obviously, moving a young family, you want to make sure the country is safe. Uh, you want to, be able to make sure that you can return home to Australia later on and that immigration laws will line up um, and then a country where you can get work. And so, Tanzania was one of the first ones that ticked all those boxes. And then um, particularly there was an organisation, once we kind of looked at Tanzania as an option, um, an organisation called Forever Angels Baby Home, where uh, they were really passionate about keeping kids with biological relatives who'd been abandoned, um, like finding relatives that could care for them and where adoption was like a last resort as opposed to a, um, you know, a first thing that they might do and that really resonated with us that we believed, you know, biological families and families are the best place for kids, kids to grow up but um, where that's not possible, adoptions are great. Uh, it's certainly better than growing up in an institution or, or even worse, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So what is Tanzania like to live in, Mark?
1: It's just beautiful. It's, um, yeah. I think that the highs are incredibly high. You know, you can wake up and go for a run up into the coffee fields and be greeted by women who are carrying, you know, full trays of bananas on their heads down to the market to sell and you greet them in the morning and they're so present. Um, I think time moves more slowly there. People have a greater sense of appreciation of the more important things in life, I think, like family, community, um, just enjoying things. Um, but, but the lows are incredibly low. So, like I said, you can go from having experience like that to just seeing people in desperate poverty hearing stories of people that um, for no reason, no fault of their own, find themselves in really difficult circumstances through sickness or illness or losing their jobs and there's no safety net um, from the government there. So, you know, th- th- you can imagine the impacts of that are huge and we've all, all experienced the safety net of our government in the last couple of years with, you know, financial support to, to people mm. who work or can't work because of COVID and that just isn't there in a country like Tanzania. So, it's, it's both incredibly high and incredibly hard at the same time. Yeah.
0: Um, When I was um, going, you know, doing my research about um, about you, I was amazed at. I had a sense of pride Mm. from the Tanzanians in the way they carried themselves and they dressed, and that to me says that they have a lot, still have a lot of hope in their lives. Would you agree?
1: A hundred percent. Yeah, And one of the big things that stuck with me and Anna as we've moved home is that that sense of hope and that sense of kind of generosity and abundance, and so. You know, well, we went back uh, in 2019 with a whole family to visit and connected with some um, some locals that we kind of met and some of them are in, you know, pretty difficult living circumstances. But when we turned up to reconnect, you know, we turned up with six kids and they've put out a beautiful spread of food and lunch and, and we know that this would have cost them, you know, a significant amount of their money compared to what they earn. But despite being in scarcity, their abundance is so generous and, and that's the posture they... Adopt, whereas in the West I think sometimes even though we have abundance, we're not even aware of it and we still show up with a scarcity mindset and we're worried about do we have enough, do we have enough. And so, um, yeah, there's definitely that Mm -hmm. countercultural kind of um, Mm -hmm. surprising generosity and hope that's there despite what's going on um, around them.
0: So so tell me about the kids, how how all that played out, the three kids that you um, adopted from there.
1: Yeah, so we, we connected with that organisation I'd mentioned earlier, for Angels Baby Home, and it just said, look, we're here, we're going to be in, in the country for a number of years if there's a um, a need for – and we really felt strongly about biological siblings that have been potentially abandoned together, that, you know, if they've lost their biological mother, at least they shouldn't lose one another. So we said we're open to adopting more than one child if that, if that helps keep them together. And so um, in end of 2010, that, that – that, Came to, to pass. I ended up uh, starting to foster three beautiful kids: so twins, Shane, Charlie, and their older biological brother Jabari. And so we ended up with um, four one-year-olds and a four-year-old <laughs> in our care within six months of moving there. And uh, and I think we we're just about to turn thirty. So if it was ever a thirtieth birthday that should have happened, <laughs> it was it was definitely that one. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: So Jackson was four, and Jemima was one.
1: Yeah, one, almost turning two when we started following the kids. And then our eldest adopted is Jabari, and he's around the same age as Jemima. Um, And, yeah, Shane Charlie, his younger brother and sister, twins, and they were just turned one. So there's this period of time in the year where four of our kids are the same age, and it's quite interesting.
0: (laughs) I can just imagine how quickly your lives changed, going from two children to five little children. Yeah. But I imagine it was ideal for Jackson and Jemima um, at that age because they don't they would not know a life without their siblings.
1: Totally. Yeah. Jackson remembers life before we moved, still he's got a really great memory, but Jemima feels like she grew up. I mean she did in Tanzania has no memory of Australia. Um, mm. so when yeah, when she came home, it was like she was leaving home to come to this new place called Australia as opposed to.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: And that's yeah. been really great for their connection and attachment to one another, I think.
0: So you fostered the three kids before the adoption went through. Right. And I did read that um, it was, you felt it was much easier to be in the country and live in that country and adopt them from that end than being yeah. over here. So. To talk me through that process.
1: Yeah, yeah so the, the the um the bureaucracy that kind of surrounds the intercountry pr- adoption program in Australia meant that families could be waiting for five, six, seven, seven years to be um, linked to a child and eventually uh, foster and adopt them. Um, we've got some friends currently in the, in the system here in Australia at the moment, and they, they, their wait's been similar to that. And so uh, our our process was at that time it um, ended up being three and a half years from. When we moved there to when we eventually um, had processed the adoptions and moved home, but I think in addition to the to the timeliness, I mean there should there should definitely be a significant time period that you are vetted as a foster parent before a country would allow you to adopt a child and, and I think that's really important. so we had a local Tanzanian social worker visiting her home every three months checking in on the kids, you know compiling a report that years later she presents to a high court judge um, on behalf of the government to say yes, we are confident that yeah, these children can be adopted by this couple. Um, but I think in addition to that, like just having all those years in Tanzania, learning the language, learning the culture, um, being like falling in love with it was really important so that when we like it wasn't just that we kind of flew in and flew out and then had nothing to really share and um teach our kids about their their culture once that once we moved to Australia. I think that there's a real, yeah, unique experience we have where we can, you know, return to Tanzania like we did in twenty nineteen and kind of show them around and um teach them language like Swahili and I think that our adopted kids see that we love the country they're from, and that's really important. Um, mm-hmm. And I think also too having that time together as a family, without all of the distractions of everyday life in Australia, just meant that we could be as busy as we wanted to be, really, which was very busy. But we didn't need to overextend ourselves with you know extra social things that just come onto your plate as a young family. We could just really go, let's focus on you know yeah. um, integrating these three beautiful kids into our family and make sure that that's the priority um, before mm-hmm. we worry about. You know, going to Auntie Jenny's fiftieth birthday, or all that sort of stuff that just comes on with um with with time, yeah,
0: yeah. And I ma- imagine it wouldn't have been easy for any of you coming back and assimilating back into Australian life after you've spent so many years over there. So, what were some of the challenges that you know you all faced coming back?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, finding a way to integrate. All that we'd seen and experienced, so you don't want to forget that because that's kind of shaped who you are, and you can't. You don't want to unsee what you've seen, but, um, but you also don't want to turn up and be the kind of person that at a dinner party that's like, "Oh, yeah, that looks like a nice steak. You've got on your plate there." Do You know how many people in this country don't even have enough to eat? Like that's not kind, and a, a, you know a, a way to show up. So trying to find where the kind of middle place is between those two um, was, was interesting, and I think um, for us starting for the projects was a real way to kind of embrace that tension where we we didn't want to forget about the hundreds of thousands of other kids like ours that had been separated from family. And so, yeah, starting for the projects was a way for us to think about what could we do from here to fund the Tanzanian teams that were actually trying to work ahead of this malnourishment problem was seeing families separated and how could they kind of catch women in crisis before families were separated and, and empower them to stay together. And so um, so I think for a projects, as much as it's benefited the women and children in Tanzania and, and certainly donors in Australia to have an experience of being generous it's, it's really helped Anna and I and our family to remain connected to um, to that experience and, and a way that feels right for where we are back in Australia.
0: So how long um, when you first came how long from when you came back, Mark, did you start Forever Projects?
1: Yeah, we we moved back into twenty thirteen and Forever Projects began End of twenty fifteen, um, but we'd already we'd run a couple of annual fundraisers even while we'd lived over in Tanzania, and you know we returned for a visit to visit family, and while we are here, we'd run a fundraising event, and so it was those early annual events that we ran that really I think showed us number one um, the immense impact that money raised could have on the lives of these these Tanzanian um, women that were being empowered to break that cycle of poverty and create a self sustaining future, but also was bringing great joy and A really rewarding experience for our friends and family that were giving money and seeing exactly where it went and the impact it made, and we could share stories and say, "Hey, last year you, sixty people gave sixteen grand." And check out these stories that these women have names and faces, and um, yeah. So that that couple of years leading up to twenty fifteen was, I think, what showed us that this could really be something we could scale up. So we launched it as Forever Projects in twenty fifteen, and haven't really looked back since. Just kept on. Doing whatever we can to, you know, invite more people in this big story. We're trying to um, help, help tell. Yeah.
0: Mm. So you've even funded a vehicle for Forever Projects over there, haven't you?
1: Yeah, that was one of our first uh, big fundraising events. So we, I think it was sometime in March, uh, March, April, twenty seventeen. Our local partner said, "Oh, we've got this four-wheel drive. It's critical for us to, you know, reach these families we're visiting. Mm-hmm. Keeps breaking down, and um, and we just a month before that." launched Forever Projects with this really unique 100% model where we were making this bold promise to donors and saying, hey, all our Aussie operational costs are covered by a small group of donors. That means if you give 100 bucks for Forever Projects, 100% of it will reach Tanzania and we want to raise $30,000 in six weeks for this car. So, what could you come up with? And just, you know, that was a big risk because people might have gone, we've got nothing and it would have been a <laughs> of But our community stepped up so generously and we Hit the target. Uh, there was one particular kid named Brendan who uh, decided he'd swim 10 kilometers straight, he was a great swimmer, and so he swam 400 laps of his 25 meter pool where he did his swimming lessons. And um, and we live streamed it on Facebook, and uh, and then we, we said we want to get to this goal before he's finished his race. And all these other people throughout the month have been doing stuff, but yeah. I think it was like you know five laps to go, and someone made the last donation. And so, as he hit the, hit the wall at the end, we said, Mate, look at this, we've We've reached $30,000 and within a couple of weeks, new car was purchased and we shared that with everyone. Um, we actually like we were in Tanzania when they bought the car and um, we, we, we travelled there a couple of weeks later. And so, we made a video, a thank you video from the car for every single donor that had given. Um, and the local team member, Hassan, one of our friends that was driving the car was like, you know, in the video. So, we got a video with a selfie in the front seat. Here we are in the new car. How is it, Hassan? And yeah, that real... Close connections, to impact with donors was super important. I think that's that kind of, um, yeah, trust that you have of donors has got to be really rewarded by saying thanks and here's what you've done. So,
0: yeah. Mm. Mark, um, I always feel more emotional, I think, at um, the generosity of people than what is actually being fundraised for because yeah. that outpouring of love and hope and, mm. and um, giving mm. is... Just so wonderful, and it's you must every day feel um, so grateful for all those people that help you on your journey and and give and there is there is no better feeling than giving, is there
1: that's right yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's such a great like we have this amazing role at, for projects of being able to share the vision of these local teams in Tanzania with what, how they're trying to scale up their work, we share that with our community and then just trust that they'll come up with all kinds of ways to use what's in their hands. It's what we say, whether it's their time, talent, money to kind of leverage what they have for good and then send that money overseas, see it put to work and then we connect those donors back with what they've done and then just when people get that email back to go, wow, yeah, I raised I around a 40th birthday and instead of presents, I, you know, gave money for projects and then they hear that, you know, that helps two families be empowered. They just, it's, it's a really, it's a great place to be in the middle of that generosity yeah. loop.
0: Um, So, Mark, if people want to help um, you with Forever Projects, how do they go about it? How do they donate money? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, the big, I mean, obviously the big thing we're all feeling at the moment is the global inflation um, crisis that's happening everywhere and uh, we're just actually going out to our community just to kind of say, hey, you know, we know this is a real thing in Australia, interest rates going up, energy, petrol, but this is really biting in Tanzania. And we're not telling that story to make people feel guilty, but just to kind of share... This is the reality. Um, and so more than ever, what we're inviting our communities to do is consider if they could give even a small amount, 10 20 $30 a month um, on a monthly basis, confident that 100% of that will go to the teams in Tanzania. But that regular, consistent giving is just such immense, um, provides immense value for our local partners because they know, okay, we've got at least X coming in per month and we can now plan out our work. Um, yeah. So that's the key. Call of Action is a great video on our site that goes into a bit more about why that's so important if people want to check it out. Um, but also, yeah. if it's not uh, money that people have, but it might be their time or their, their, their talent or, you know, their, their network, uh, there's all kinds of ways people can get involved. So jump on projects.org and, and meet our community or getting involved and be inspired by their stories. Yeah.
0: Um, now, I am very aware of your time here today but i just wanted to quickly ask you you've done some work with seth Godin, haven't you so he's an author and educator so just can you quickly run me through what you do with him
1: yeah so um seth's been really instrumental in uh guiding us from from the very start and thinking about how we tell stories and invite people into um yeah this big story that we're trying to tell for the projects and and thinking about what does it mean to create culture and i think that the I think it's seven words that he uses to describe culture are people like us do things like this. That's how he describes culture. People like us do things like this. And so, from the very start, we've been thinking, all right, for the project's community, who are the people like us and what are the things like this that we do? And uh, so, that's, that's his work's been really instrumental. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to get a scholarship into his Alt-MBA program in 2019, um, which is like a leadership accelerator and then uh, on the back of that, I've done some leadership coaching with him and uh, his workshops. And so that's been an amazing way to kind of give back to the community that he's um, kind of led. And he's now, as a great leader, kind of tied that project up and passed it on to other people who are now leading it. But, uh, that's, yeah, it's been an incredible experience for me and for our team to kind of up, upskill ourselves as leaders and culture, culture shapers, yeah.
0: So you would have done all that remotely because yeah. he lives in America and you live in Wollongong so yeah. yeah
1: and it was interesting it was in 2019 that I first did that and so that was kind of before the lockdowns and before pandemic he was already kind of he, he, he'd been fascinated by what online learning communities could be and he'd seen workshops out there that you know the participation rates were quite low and he was like how can we get those things up um and so he launched this this workshop called the Old MBA and so I did that and um and then so I, know, I think participating in it and seeing just what's possible online. Like, you know, you, you and I are in the same room here, but we're connecting and it's possible yes. to do that really well. Um, just done with intent and generosity. And so that I think in addition to all the leadership stuff that I've learned, like it's been great to be able to take those principles and go, you know, we can lead a – like our team at Forever Projects works remotely. I've not met two of our team members. We, we, have, we hired them during the pandemic and um, it doesn't matter. We feel – really close as a team and been able to kind of take the ingredients into that um, magic space he's created and and kind of try to replicate some of it for ourselves,
0: yeah. Well, Mark, thank you. It's been so interesting hearing firsthand all about what you do, and um, I'll keep an eye on your progress, and and, um, hopefully, you know, we'll find a few people who'll get on board and and help you um, with all of the goals that you have for Forever Project. So thank you very, very much.
1: Thanks so much, Kelly. It's been
0: awesome. Thank you for listening to my interview. If you'd like to hear more inspiring stories, subscribe to my YouTube channel or my podcast and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at LifeJourneyTV.